remember, people increasingly they don't buy ingredients. They can't spell ingredients. They don't know what an ingredient is. They're buying a meal solution or a snack solution. Welcome to our next episode of Australian Porks Podcast. Next on the menu. Our podcast is a curation of conversations on the future of food, and we've been exploring our guests' perspectives on the innovations that will challenge the world of food as we know it. I'm Andrew Billy Baxter, Chair of Australian Pork, and joining me today, as usual, is my fine co-host and long-term advocate and absolute champion of the Australian pork industry, Mitch Edwards. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you, Billy. This is going to be a very exciting take today. I can't wait. Excellent. And today, we're going to dial into a guest all the way from the UK, the Emeritus Professor David Hughes, who has unparalleled knowledge of global food issues and opportunities. Mitch, it'll be a big one. Absolutely. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Hughes, aka also known as Dr. Food, we're told, a professor of food marketing at the Imperial College in London and the Royal Agricultural University in the UK. David's a renowned speaker who has a constantly evolving and informed view on global food industry developments. He helps organisations understand the commercial implications of change in their industry and how they might respond to combat threats and embrace opportunities. David's lived and worked all over the world. He's got extensive experience as an international advisory board member with food companies and financial services organisations on three continents. Uh, His views are frequently sought by the media and those within the industry. David, big long welcome. Welcome to the Next on the Menu podcast. I'm just delighted to be talking to you, and uh, I'm just sorry I can't be in Australia. At this time of year and the normal conditions, I would be in Australia, and I'm missing it. I hope you'll let us guys in. Well, at least next year, for goodness sake. Uh, yeah, I think we will. I think we're letting the Aussies home first, and then we'll let everybody else in after that. We're likewise. We want to get back over there. Uh, now, I just, just a quick opening question. Where has this passion of yours developed in the food and the agricultural industry? Well, grandparents were farmers. That's a good start. My father was second son, so was kicked out when he was 15 uh, (laughs) because his brother got the farm. You know, that was the way the system worked. And then I thought I'd be a farmer, but uh, never quite made it. Perhaps learnt the error of my ways. And uh, I've been working in ag and food for, you know, for 55 years, for goodness sake. Now, it's uh, an embarrassingly long time and all over the world. Now, we are seeing quite a bit of change in the meat industry globally, particularly around consumption. And and there's all sorts of predictions out to 2027. We've had, obviously, ASF in China and a few other things that are affecting that. But how do you think the meat sector in general is performing and also specifically our pork industry? In Europe, there's like mild panic as you see the increase of interest in uh, so-called plant-based proteins and Mm. the the emergence, if you will, of cell-based meats. I would guess that in developed countries, higher income countries, I would expect to see meat consumption per capita not to grow, probably just to fall off a little, particularly for red meat. And I'm thinking here of beef and uh, and lamb rather than than pork. But the the global picture is uh, one of uh, enormous positive. You know, I would expect to see, let's move forward in 10 years, that uh, there'll be a 20% increase in global meat consumption, but largely that will be driven by uh, emerging countries, particularly as their incomes start to sort of get back to previous levels and see the sort of growth that we've got used to. And that must be be good news. I think from a a pork producer point of view, you've got to be sort of quick on your feet. 
I don't know enough about your export performance, for example, in Port, but uh, you know, there you are. You're lucky enough to be sitting just on the rim of some of the fastest growing countries in the world from an economic point of view, and they will increase their meat consumption. Why? Because it's aspirational, because the meat consumption is relatively low now, uh, whereas go to uh, old world uh, Western Europe and North America, the meat consumption is very high by international standards, and it will not grow. It just won't. It will fall off, particularly, I would think, for beef. And when you're talking about the different international markets, I'm really keen to hear from you, David, about post-pandemic, the key trends that you're seeing in the retail sector. And we spoke a little bit before we actually went online about the different routes that consumers can expect to, to see outside of the traditional sense of outside of the bricks and mortar retail shops. Can you fill us in more on that topic? I think it was really fascinating. Right, sure. What we're seeing is, uh, and it's characteristic of the pandemic, of the COVID-19 pandemic, is this sort of acceleration of trends that were evident pre-COVID, but they've just sort of picked up steam. Increasingly, there are different routes to the consumer than the traditional route, uh, which let's call that traditional route being the route towards the supermarket, the bricks and mortar supermarket. Yeah. Number one, which you've seen in, uh, in Australia, of course, is this move to online grocery shopping. Actually, from an Australian perspective, you started at very low levels anyway. You were also reluctant to buy fresh or chilled meat online because you want to see it. Same in Canada, actually. But uh, in the UK, we were more willing to embrace online grocery shopping. So, for example, in the UK, we're about 12, 14% of grocery overall is online. In Australia, it'll be half that. But you've grown from nothing to near 6%. So we've got online grocery shopping. The question I ask immediately is, is that good for fresh meat? It's a bit of a challenge for you guys because still Australians are reluctant to purchase online. Actually, they're much more willing to purchase frozen, uh, and that can be frozen meat. And we've seen in most countries a real uptick in terms of frozen grocery purchases and particularly meat. So this move towards online, that's one. Two, and you're just starting to see it emerge in Australia right now, which is the ultra-fast delivery of convenience items from dark mini fulfillment centers. If we look at the, the UK, we've got startups. You can get on their apps. They'll deliver food to you within 15 minutes. Yeah. And uh, the delivery charge is extraordinarily small. And will that be a big deal going forward? Well, it will start to just eat away like a mouse at the market share that traditional supermarkets have. And the question I ask is, Will people use those sort of mini convenience stores to purchase pork products? Probably not fresh meat, but they might do snacks, for example. And do you have enough pork snacks out there? Do you think that this coming late to the party with online shopping, do you think it creates opportunities? Have you seen it create opportunities for producers to start to work direct with consumers? I think it's uh, opportunities not only for big groups of uh, uh, producers, also for individual producers, the particularly, at the, yeah. particularly at the top end of the, uh, of the market, the premium market. If you're a pork producer and you believe you've got a good story, uh, which could be a family farm story, it could be a provenance yeah. story, it could be a regional yep. story, then there are clear opportunities. And you've seen growths in that you know, all around the world, frankly, for meat and uh, for, I mean, even for fish. I was talking Norway last week, uh, 
And we've seen a real growth there in direct to consumers for, for fresh fish. Who would have thought that, for goodness sake? Does that mean sort of bye-bye bricks and mortar supermarket retailing? No, but it does mean that they have to be sort of better with these sort of multi-channel approach because people, yes, they want to go to a supermarket, particularly if there's some element of theater. If I look at Australian supermarket retailing, you're your two is Coles and Woolworths. Is that an uplifting experience? Is it a sort of brilliant uh, moment of theatre when you go to buy your groceries? No. And clearly, we would expect to see. I mean, I'd look to Asia, for example. You know, go to China, uh, see what Alibaba has done with Fresh Ippo or Hema, H E M A, where it's a really exciting to go and shop there. You can eat in the store, you can uh, mm. play in the store, you can have whatever you buy sent home. So, we're going to see supermarkets having to respond to other competitors that aren't bricks and mortar. One thing is quite clear, too, in traditional supermarket retailing is that we're seeing just more and more technology. Actually, just breaking news this morning, just before getting on this podcast, Tesco announced that it's emulating Amazon with its walk-in, walk-out food shopping, where mm. you just tap your phone, you've got the app, the Tesco app, in you go, pick up what you want and leave. You don't even talk to anybody if you don't want to. And you're billed on your phone uh, within seconds of going out. So more and more technology. But now we're seeing it's pushed all other retailers to up their game on technology. Back into, again, roots to the consumer. I mean, who'd have thought if you take restaurant meal platforms, so now we order the meal we want, we can eat out at home, if you will. And let's go to the US where three companies have 90% of the total market share of restaurant meals delivered to your home. Take something like DoorDash, which is the mm. number one. Uh, DoorDash is on a quarterly basis. Uh, they're, they're doing 1.2, 1.3 billion meals every wow. quarter. It's got a market cap, DoorDash, of 65 billion US dollars. I mean, that's way more than Woolies. Uh, and, you know, Willie's is a serious international retailer in terms of its, its, its overall size. So, again, the importance of those restaurant meal delivery platforms is huge. And, again, from a pork industry point of view, said, do we have the right connections there? Yeah. You know, we need to work with those platforms to see because it's an increasingly important route to the consumer. And, you know, will this, uh, this sort of delivery of meals, we can see it manifested, too, in, say, meal kits, Again, in Australia, you will have uh, HelloFresh, for example. But you've also got your unique Australian uh, meal kits. Are these a big deal? Again, back to HelloFresh. HelloFresh is in about 18 countries now. It's got a market cap greater than Coles. It's something that you know many households around the developed world will do on a regular basis. And again, from a pork supplier point of view, do I have those connections? to those meal kit companies. You better do. And also, there's a view that, uh, well, you know, meal kits, they'll just sort of disappear when we move out of uh, uh, COVID. Not so. When I see the Nestle's, of, Nestle is far and away the biggest food company in the world. It's bought three meal kit related companies, paid well over a billion dollars. So it believes it's got legs. 
For me, and I love what you talked about with DoorDash, because a lot of our listeners here in Australia, for example, won't realize how big they are. They've only just launched in Australia. Yes. So, you know, we have uh, Uber and, and also Menulog doing very well here. Yeah. But I'm quite keen to pick up on that, the, the habits post-COVID, and I'm sure everybody here would love to know, what are some of those trends, particularly back in restaurants? You know, what's happening? Uh, what can we expect here? I'm Canadian as well as being a Brit. And just before COVID-19 <laughs> started, I was in Canada. And it, in fact, I was in Edmonton. It was minus 32 degrees centigrade. Can you imagine? And I was standing in the reception area of the hotel at seven o'clock at night. And there were about 60 people milling around. And I asked the receptionist, is there some sort of event going on? She said, no, they're waiting for their restaurant meal deliveries to arrive. This was in a hotel. Wow. And uh, I said, how do you mean? He said, well, yeah, nobody eats in the hotel restaurant. And I, I went in. It was empty. They were all just waiting for the meals that they wanted specifically from their favorite restaurants in Edmonton. Deliverer there was, it's called Skip the Dishes, which is number one in Canada. And who's it owned by? It's owned by Just Eat, which will be one of the major players in, in Australia. And again, it's that sort of, uh, you see that internationalization of it. Actually, so back to your what's happening in restaurants. I have direct experience of this. My younger son has two restaurants in Devon in the southwest of England, and we've had a torrid time over the last 18 months, mm -hmm. I, I tell you. And really, it's about shortage of staff. What Garth has, Garth is my son with the restaurants, what he's had to do is simplify the menu. There's huge demand that uh, he's booked out every night, but he's had to just slim that menu down and, you know, just make it so that the less staff he's got can just cope, frankly. And we're going to see lots more of that too. It's uh, what we've seen out of this, and I think it will continue, is this drive towards automation, even in the restaurant industry. I was looking at White Castle who have burger machines now in their restaurants where you know, they're sort of made automatically, if you will. You know, that seems like oh, science fiction, but now it's actual reality, for goodness sake. David, I was in a restaurant on Saturday and it was amazing. The signage at the front of the restaurant was suggesting you take your table yourself, right? telling you the, the rules around the table or the number of people. At the table, there was a pad and I had my, my son and daughter-in-law with me who understood this technology, I felt like a dinosaur. They said, oh, you scan the code, there's the menu, you place your order. The first time we saw a waiter was bringing our food to us. Mm. But I actually did want to just swing around from that to um, what you're seeing, because I know there's so many great, so much great stuff, but I wanted to hear about what you're seeing with the meat substitution. So the products that are not meat, that are called meat, and what you're seeing in that area, which is sort of happening in food service as well as retail. Okay, this whole area of plant-based and cell-based uh, meat. So, But let's focus on plant-based because cell-based isn't with us really. Uh, I mean, it is available in one restaurant in Singapore, uh, but yeah. that's, uh, you know, just that's by the by. It sort of intrigues me because the focus tends to be plant-based meat. Actually, yeah. the biggest level of competition in agriculture is not for meat, it's for dairy. Uh, and if I look what's happening in the US and, uh, and in Europe, the strongest growth in sales for plant-based products is in dairy substitutes, you know, particularly you know, oat-based milks or, uh, or almond milks, whatever they will. So are we seeing growth? We're clearly seeing growth for plant-based meats, but from a very, very low base. 
And actually, they've still got a long way to go because a lot of the products that are out there, I mean, the packaging is tasty as far as I and looks better than the, <laughs> than the plant-based meat itself. So they've got a long, long way to go. However, they are improving. I think what you should focus on is that, uh, is this just sort of uh, nimble little startups from California who are being trendy? Well, no. Unilever and Nestle, I mean, two of the biggest food companies in the world, both are putting heavy, heavy bets on this. And you know, when they do, they're serious. Um, I think it's Unilever looking for $5 billion worth of sales from plant-based products in the next five years, and they'll get there. So it's a genuine threat, and it will only get more. I mean, we're seeing just more and more push towards this sort of notion of climate-friendly meats, and that's just going to grow and grow and grow. So climate-friendly diets, what I see emerging certainly now in, in Europe Enviro scores. Uh, I'm sure you're sort of well familiar with them in, in Australia. I would expect to see every food product on sale in Europe with an Enviro score within two years. And whoever I'm talking to in the food industry say, look at your product, work out what you think its Enviro score would be, because it will be presented like the way uh, you already present your nutritional information, the health star rating that you've got at the at the moment in, in, in Australia. It'd be sort of like that, but in a European way, which will be traffic lights. So would pork be red or would it be green? And what's for an Enviro score? And what sort of threat would that bring? Hmm. So back to you, you said, what about plant-based meats? Yes, they're very small. Their share of the market is tiny. It will only grow. Uh, if you wanted me to just magic up a number, I would have thought by, say, 2035, that if I looked in, a, in developed countries and the meat market overall by 2035, I'd be surprised if plant-based and cell-based meats didn't have, I think they'll have about 15% of the total market. Mm. One five, fifteen percent of the total total market. But remember, by twenty thirty five, the overall market for meat will have grown substantially. So they will have a place, but it won't be a dominant place. What are the underlying drivers that you're seeing? I mean, almost academically. I mean, is it is it nutrition on its own? Is it is no. it this? You know, no. no environment and animal welfare. Okay, so you- environment number one, uh, animal welfare uh, number two. And again, it tends to be with younger consumers. Will they grow out of it? Mm. You know, I would expect to see the proportion of consumers who are certainly flexitarian. Yes. And uh, who will be electing to have a meat-free meal on a pretty regular basis. That's going to grow. Will absolutely grow. Yeah, we, we've seen that grow significantly here. That, yeah. that group. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we should feel threatened to a degree. I don't know what you're doing in the pork industry in Australia. Clearly, you've got to work on your environmental footprint, but you've got to be really bloody careful about how you do that. Uh, I was sort of bemused and amused that uh, Danish Crown, which is probably the largest pork exporter in the world, you know, from Denmark, they've got themselves in an awful lot of trouble in Denmark. They made a big splash about saying they were going to be climate neutral by 2030 in the pork industry. And then the environmental activists were on them, just said greenwashing, and they've created a real, a real stir there. They've, so Danish Crown have had to be you know, right back on, on the defensive to justify the sort of um, 
claims that they've made. So if you're making a promise, I, I think it's better to under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver. And what's more, I think in Australia where farmers are well-loved, people want to support you, but at the same time, they'll want you to be greener. So tell them you've got a plan. As you go through that plan, communicate with them, and they will give you latitude. They'll give you time to get to where you want to be in terms of environmental footprint by 2030. You know, that sort of climate-friendly diet, that is absolutely huge. David, we've got a big story to tell. We've got to communicate animal welfare. We've got to create our behaviour in the, in the climate space. It is a hard story to tell. So how much is too much and when isn't it enough? The best people to do the communication are farmers, not people in suits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's one. Two, but make sure those farmers are media trained Yeah. Uh, so that they make a good fist of it. There are probably other issues that you know, perhaps that don't have the profile of environment and animal welfare. And you've got to have a good look at what are the social issues that are emerging that are liable to sort of bite us in the ass. When I'm doing my talks, I've got a one-liner, which is, tell me again which foods I can't eat. Uh, you know, and then you go down the list. Uh, it's anything with palm oil in. Uh, why? Well, because of the orangutans. You know, I mean, a lot of it isn't scientifically accurate. Remember, consumers aren't driven by science. They're driven by sort of visceral feelings, by emotions and I think the, the great challenge for the pork industry is to just work out what are the values of our key customers and are we in tune with them? Are we, are we consonant with them? And I suppose, David, it, it, is it more about the carbon footprint than ever before and forgetting about the animal welfare? Not forgetting about it, I'm sorry, but less emphasis there. Like in Australia, our, we've reduced our carbon footprint by more than 60% and our water usage by 80%. Mm. What examples do you have of uh, other meat products and uh, marketing initiatives that had positive results uh, based on this environmental sort of position? Because maybe we're not telling that story loudly enough. Right. And of course, and you're not alone in Australia, as I uh, can recall, haven't the Australian beef, lamb and goat industry say they're going to be carbon neutral by 2030? Yes. So intriguing to see where they are in that, that regard. I don't know if anybody is doing it particularly well at the moment. Your core consumers want to see you've got a plan. They want you reporting back to them on how you're doing against plan. And they want to uh, see that you are, which I guess you're doing, is being transparent and traceable in your supply chains. And then they will give you support. I mean, animal welfare is it's such a tricky issue because there will be practices which are just commonplace in livestock production around the world that we don't even think are animal welfare unfriendly, which are perceived to be. Uh, so I was just listening to the BBC farming program two days ago, and a young shepherdess was talking about tail docking. Mm. And I, th I thought, do you know what you're saying? And it'll be, you know, there are millions of people listening to this who will view that that's barbaric. And, you know, just, and just as, uh, uh, Australians have done with the, the sheep industry talking about mules saying, well, have you seen what fly strike looks like? Well, right, that isn't the right response to that, that uh, you've got to be in tune 
with people's values. Again, on animal welfare, I was looking at a piece of uh, survey work in the UK, which released last week, actually, where it was 40% of, of the UK think that an animal's life is of the same value as a human's life. So, you know, that's their starting point. Okay, <laughs> um, we haven't done well. So, for example, in the, in the UK, we ran out of carbon dioxide. Uh, this was related to the energy crisis. And we suddenly found that we use carbon dioxide in the food industry. How do we use it? We use it to stun pigs prior to slaughter. <laughs> well, when consumers in the UK found out that, they said, you do what? You, what, you gas the pigs. <laughs> and, you know, this was a level of knowledge that they didn't need but that we yeah. have to share. And it's a reminder of, you know, how sticky many of these, these issues are. It's going to be a hard slog. It will always be a hard slog because we have to kill animals to eat them. <laughs> and there's a, a fair proportion of, and perhaps an increasing proportion of people who find that, who are very uncomfortable about that. That's interesting. The, the Australian pork team have just done a great, uh, very transparent 360-degree video of a farm of exactly what goes on through that whole process because, yeah. to your point, there's no point hiding behind it. Yeah. Um, it is what it is, and, and I think there's actually some myths to be debunked in seeing what really goes on as opposed to what people yeah. tell you go on. So yeah. I think that's been a, uh, a really great thing from our team. I do want to just touch on Australian pork, and in your mind, I mean, what are some of the differentiators? You know, we, we are up against other meats. We're up against these plant-based. We're up against cell-based. I mean, we've talked a little bit about this environmental piece. What, what in your mind are some of the great differentiators of pork that you're seeing around the world? First of all, and of course, as you know, I mean, the uh, pork is hugely popular around the world. It does tend to be particularly popular in certain regions, as we well know, yes. you know not least China, for example. And if I look at how pork has performed in, say, Western Europe and North America, it's held pretty stable, actually, in the face of increasing competition from chicken. If I look around the world, where the real excitement in terms of growth and consumption, it's all been about chicken. So often what I do is look at why is chicken so successful and how can we sort of emulate that from a pork point of view? And it, it's convenience, it's versatility, it's quickness into making it into a meal Former. And I think the pork industry has done pretty well in that, that regard. I look for those businesses that use more adjectives. What do I mean by that? It's uh, that you know, pork is the noun. Pork is a commodity. Pork is not differentiated. It's, uh, you know, it's, you're in that commodity race to the bottom uh, battle. And I love to see where the individual businesses, again, or indeed, perhaps you can do the industrial, uh, the industry level say, okay, well, what sort of pork? How can I add value-added adjectives to my pork? It's somebody's pork. It's, you know, it could be Tasmanian pork. That's a start. It's, uh, you know, free-range pork. It's specific breed pork. I mean, people are looking for the story. Give them the story so they've got more to hang on to than just the, you know, go out and you don't want people to say, go and buy some pork. Now, that's because then they'll end up doing what increasingly people are doing in the UK right now and right around the world, which is we're in the middle of a global price war in food. When I see Tesco competing with Aldi, so having price match pork with Aldi, I think that's just dreadful from an industry point of view. 
And how can you get away from that? It's by having different sorts of pork, somebody's pork, provenance pork, free range pork, hormone free pork, or whatever it might be. So pick the adjectives that appeal to the consumers that you know best and then give them an opportunity to tell a story when they present the product to their families and their friends. David, when you're talking there on the retail chains, we're seeing this incorporating food service into their business model for an all-encompassing shopping experience. Do you see this as the way of the future? If we'd been having this podcast 10 years ago, uh, then we'd be talking about food service and retail. And all that's happened over the last 10 years is that food service and food retail have converged. So the restaurant meal, uh, well, you can buy the restaurant meal in the supermarket. So it's become one. The trend there is that people don't buy chunks of meat. What they're looking for is the meal solution or the snack solution. And that could be either from a restaurant, it could be from, in, in our case, Marks and Spencer's, where you can buy the, the meal in a package, if you will. So they've come together. And I think that's profound. I think we've got to, from a pork industry point of view, we've got to say, how does my product fit into the meal solution? And how can I present it in a way that it is clear and obvious? Back to chicken. Chicken have done that sort of brilliantly in terms of it's in nugget formats, it's in, you know, wing format or what, whatever it may be. We still, Still to this day in fresh meat, tend to have, I'm always amazed when I go to supermarkets, that we call our products by the point of anatomical origin on the carcass. I mean, the beef industry, I shake my head at that, you know, the uh, brisket. (laughs) When I see see something in Tesco with brisket, nobody under the age of 40 has a bloody clue about brisket (laughs) or, you know, even... uh, Pork shoulder. It's on trend again now, David. We all know brisket now. <laughs> Pork shoulder. Well, let's say that, so that that's where it comes up from on the carcass. Hmm. How can I turn that into a meal? Remember, people increasingly, they don't buy ingredients. They can't spell ingredients. They don't know what an ingredient is. They're buying a meal solution or a snack solution. David, you are an incredible wealth of information. But before I let you go, I want you to, to tell us is that if there's anything else that we haven't covered that we at the, as the Australian pork industry absolutely need to know. On the consumer trends end, there's one area which I miss, which is, I think, really, really important. And I was looking at some data out of the US over the 2021 period where all the growth in meat sales came in the US. And there were two groups of shoppers, consumers, and you characterize them as confident cooks. That's 8% of total shoppers in the US and cooking enthusiasts. They're not as confident. They like cooking, but they're, and they're 22%. So that's together, that's just under a third of all, all shoppers are either confident or they're enthusiastic. And they accounted for like 96% of the increase in meat sales during that worst COVID period. And what were they doing? They were looking for premium cuts. They were trading up. And why? Because they wanted to, yeah, they couldn't go out to eat. And so it sort of pushed them into experimenting with the sort of meals that they would have if they'd been eating out. And they loved it. Pork ribs for example, increased by 200% 
even uh, pork roasts, which they hadn't thought about cooking at, at, at home, even that uh, increased by like 180%. And it's saying, you know, from an Australian context, it's saying, okay, what's the relative importance of those two groups? Because those groups will be in Australia. How can we sort of just jolly them along with our product offer? Because they underpin the growth in the industry. A brilliant two groups to work on. It was, I think, stunning that, uh, so if you look pre and then during COVID, that for meat and fish purchases, the number of items that consumers in the US would consider, it increased from 10, that was their set of products, to 18 by the end of the worst of COVID, where suddenly they'd extended their range. And that was largely driven by those enthusiastic or confident cooks. Focus on them because uh, they're with you. They're the group of consumers who will hang on, who will have improved their cooking skills and their core to your market, I would suggest. David, speaking of enthusiasm, I think Billy will agree with me here. Your enthusiasm is contagious and delightful. Absolutely is. It's, uh, it's been an incredible conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, David. It was a privilege and a pleasure to chat with you this afternoon. It's been great for me. And I'm uh, just to reiterate, I wish I was just uh, in the studio with you. And I just can't wait for 2022. Re- really, it's, uh, you know, you, you have to let us in for goodness sake. Well, we'll take you up on that next year when you come in. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, you know, I've, I'll have been quadruple vaccine by the time I, I get to Australia. <laughs> I'm full of the stuff. We're coming to visit you too. I'll be there for your summer. But do come to the restaurant in, uh, in the southwest of England to Devon and uh, I'll show you how we cook pork and we do it well. You're on. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Next on the Menu. I'd like to thank our incredible guest today, Professor David Hughes, my co-host, Andrew Billy Baxter, our producers, Boyd Britton and Ashley Gray, and our researcher, Andrea Zanata. This podcast can be found on all good podcast networks such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also find Next on the Menu across all Australian Pork social channels or at australianpork.com.au. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review and feedback. I'm Mitch Edwards. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Next on the Menu.